0: It is really good to remember how good God is to us, isn't it? It's So, so good. And on God's goodness, we're going to talk about God's kindness tonight. More specifically, my goal is to speak about the kindness of Christ. And I've got to tell you, I misread the passage, and so I started off on a path and decided not to veer from the path, even though as I studied it, I realized I got it wrong. So Titus 3. I'll explain that in just a second. Have you ever done that? You thought you get the passage, you read it, and then the more you study, you're like, hmm, that does not mean what I thought it meant. So, the verse that that tipped me off, as this would be a good one, as we talk about Christ formed in you, is um, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. So, I'm thinking, this is a great verse on kindness, right? Christ is kind, and he is. But that's not exactly what it's saying. He's talking about God the Father there. It's one of the few places where you have God the Father referred to as Savior, so it's not exactly Christ-formed in you, but maybe I would say it this way if I'm trying to shoehorn this into this series and make it work, right? So this is a theological point that you won't see unless you read theology books, which is probably not the hobby of too many of you all. But Christ was godly, and that is, he was godlike. So like, I have a chapter in several theology books called The Godliness of Christ, which is something most of us don't even think about. Like, of course he was godly. But the point is, is that he, he was like his father. He lived like his father. That he was actually like God, not just merely because he was God, but because, in fact, he did the things that he saw his father do. So there you go. There's my shoehorn in. That if God is kind, Christ is kind, and we're called to be like Christ. So this is still fitting with our series, Christ formed in you. Having said all of that, um, if we're thinking thematically about um, what is happening in this text, I find this text compelling because the argumentation is is simple, although difficult to execute. And sometimes passages, it's like you really dig into them before you can kind of understand the, the, the relationships of the logic. But I think in this text you see on the, on the surface what's going on fairly quickly. So let me, let me see if I can give you kind of thematically what I would say is this. God loves, or actually maybe use the word kind, since that's the Christ-likeness um, virtue we're speaking of tonight, because Christ is kind to ugly people. I should be kind to ugly people. Now, when I use the word ugly, it's just the word I I like using for this. I'm talking about people who are unpleasant and undesirable, people who provoke in us everything naturally that's not called kindness. And sometimes that is people we actually love dearly. So whether it's our, you know, so like people we're committed most to, family and and children, spouses, parents. You know, we love them, but sometimes they annoy us. and, And they can get the, the most unkind treatment of anyone in our world you know, i am much more disciplined with my coworkers than i am with my wife in terms of just kind of letting my natural responses be the first responses that are are, are let let uh, let out okay so that being the logic let's let's break it down in its in its parts so i think in in verses one and two you have kind of the the, the application and then you have the explanation So a lot of times in in most sermons I give, they're kind of like they flow, I I would say, like with a deductive logic. You know, because God is kind, therefore we should be kind. This reverses that. It's like, be kind. And then explains, because God was kind. So it kind of reverses that natural order of that deductive reasoning. Maybe inductive would be the way you see it. But it's really application, then explanation. So here's the application, verses 1 and 2. Remind them, he's speaking to Titus. So he's saying, Titus, preach to them, teach to them. Challenge them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward whom? All people. Towards all people. He's going to get that logic in verse 3. Here's why. Four. But before we get there, he basically gives seven admonitions. Do this, 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 and this. And generally, there's themes there, Right? Like, you can see this, this call to be responsive to those over us, whether it's governmental authorities or whether perhaps with, like, we would say bosses, but he would have thought slave masters, or whether even in the household context with parents and things like this, that there is an admonition that godly people be submissive. You realize who he's writing to, right? He's writing to Titus, who serves on the island of Crete. So, you know, when, when your grandmother says, don't be a Cretan, that's, that's this. That's this people. This is where Cretans come from. So if you're like, oh, man, they're a Cretan. That's this. That's this people. So when he says be obedient, that's because Cretans weren't. They were like the, the, the people that no one wanted to do business with. You know, we might say a used car salesman. you know, to kind of describe the stereotypical, like, don't do business with them. They would say don't do business with a Cretan because you will lose your shirt and you won't even know it. They're liars. They're bad people. They're they not good people. So t- here's, here's Titus called to minister there. And the challenge is to this kind of stiff-necked, little bit slimy group of people, your believers now don't act like a cretin, act like a Christian. Don't act like someone who always is thumbing his nose or... Um, Ignoring or raising a fist to authority instead, submit. Which speaks both to behavior and attitude, right? Because he says, Submit to authorities and be obedient. Yeah, that's hard. So you have that, and then he moves forward and he says, Be ready for every good work. Yeah, you know, so so there's this anticipation and readiness to labor at those things that are morally approved it's one of the things that's it's funny today i had a conversation i think emma you're part of this conversation how do you get ministry volunteers to show up on time nursery workers check-in people greeters i mean our service tonight i think started at 607 because the pastor wasn't even on time i mean this is a hard battle we're fighting here to be on time so we, we have this challenge, and, and part of this is, I, I think we forget that the latter part of good work is actually just work, that there's a call to labor, to be diligent, to sacrifice what we want, and to work hard at it. So this call to the Cretans is not to be consuming things on their own desires, and they says, speak evil of whom? Now, let me just tell you, when it comes to politics next year, I want to see you obey this verse. Speak evil of whom? no one i think the greek has that word blaspheme is basically the english kind of uh, transliteration of it which has the idea that if you if you if you say this about god as a divine being that's where we have the idea of blaspheme we really understand it but the point is is god deserves honor so we definitely don't want to speak badly of him but it's the same thing we speak of others We are slandering them, we are criticizing them, and we're speaking out of turn. Speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show courtesy. It feels like this is what every mother is trying to pound into their 13-year-old boy. Because they're not gentle. They're not courteous. They're demanding their way, they're demanding their rights. I mean, if there's a door, they are through it first. They don't even wait for the lady, let alone open the door and hold it for her and then go through. And this is the task of parents. It's the task of a culture. We have a culture of discourtesy. We have a culture of rudeness. Again, I do not want to dive into the politics here, but Trump is such low-hanging fruit here. I think the reason he's popular is because he and courtesy have never met. He speaks bluntly, he speaks rudely, he speaks in a way that, into our culture, I think is compelling, because most politicians are so slick, you don't even know what they think. And, And he's bombastic, but he is not courteous, he is not gentle. Whether or not I agree with his politics is irrelevant to the point that he shows us the age we live in that his popularity is a byproduct of the fact that he speaks the language of our world. And very much like the Cretans, we need to recognize that tendency even within us and resist it. That, that gentleness is always right. Okay, having said all of that, by the way, I, like, this is a helpful proverb for me when I think of gentleness because I think sometimes we, we assume a gentle person has a hard time communicating. When Proverbs tells me that a gentle word can break a bone, I think, I think we can get to the place where we understand that I can speak gently and get a lot accomplished, I mean, especially when you are appealing to the things that are actually valuable in a person's life. And so, for instance, if I'm going to talk to my daughter, I can scold her, or I might call her to consider Christ and say, hey, I, I know that the way you spoke to your mom might have communicated really clearly what you felt like, but both Jesus and I were pretty embarrassed. I think your mom is pretty hurt. Do you think maybe you want to rethink that and talk to your mom? I think all three of my daughters would cry if I did that. But instead, a lot of times what we do is we're like, we come in with, with intensity and volume and anger rather than appealing to them to consider Christ. And, and I think that's where, like, when I look at avoid quarreling and be gentle and show courtesy, Sometimes we don't just take the care and the caution to articulate with grace, with and maybe I'd say and with power. Right, a wise person makes his words persuasive. All right. Having said all of that, that's the application. This is like, like so reverse of normal Paul. Like do 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 do. And we haven't gotten to any like theological truth yet. So then we come and he says, "Here's why the theological truth is on its way. For we ourselves were once foolish." Do you see the logic he's building? Like, be like this to all people. You live in Crete. When he says all people, they know the bums they got to be kind to. They're ugly. And he goes, because you were once just like them. You were ugly too. That's his theological point. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to our various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another in turn. You look at that and that the indictment against the church. I mean both sweet and sour. You were once this. I mean this is what God saved you from being. You were an ugly person when we look at you. Unvarnished, you look at the mirror and you see who you truly are with no spiritual makeup on. It's an ugly thing. But like it was. It's not looking good. And then we come to verse 4, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us. Why does God love you? Why is he kind to you? Why is he merciful to you? Precisely because of how ugly you are. Because a person who's compelling and fantastic and wonderful deserves care and kindness. The rude, obnoxious jerk who's malicious and in fights and hates everyone, that person deserves to be treated poorly, right? I'm saying that's who you are. And what redeemed you out of that was not someone being kind only when you deserved it, but in, sp- in fact being kind despite your lack of deserving of it. So here's God's kindness. God is kind to the person least deserving, most horrific, and it goes, that's us. That's the church. That's the redeemed church. That's who we are. So what energizes kindness towards others is a clear perspective on two things. Who are you? Like, strip away the grace of God. Strip away the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. Strip away the, the enlightened understanding of God's word that only comes through the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit. Strip all of that away, and who are you? You are about as ugly as you can imagine. Strip all of that away, and see yourself like Christ sees you, and you'll be horrified. And this is—I this, think—if we—if we kind of like back up and argue backwards into this, this is one of our theological problems with the doctrine of hell. We don't think we deserved it. That it doesn't—that doesn't actually—it doesn't, actually, it doesn't ind- indict hell as a problem it actually reveals pride. Like, no one thinks we should have a death penalty for jaywalking because jaywalking isn't a big deal. Likewise, we think no one should go to hell forever because of sin because we actually think our sin isn't that big a deal. The problem isn't that hell is so over the top in terms of severity the problem is, we have no comprehension of how horrific we are before grace. We don't. So, one of the things that energizes compassion, mercy, and kindness, right, is the kindness and the goodness of God, our Savior, is an honest evaluation of yourself. Who am I if I take away God's grace? Let me just tell you this is i think a breath of fresh air to any church because one of the things that makes any sweet church a toxic place of hypocrisy is when we forget grace and what we are without it and and you've all been on the ugly side of an ungracious person someone who's unkind it's not pleasant and the problem is they're probably kind of right You know, so when someone who's ungracious confronts you on something, I mean, you know who you are if you look in the spiritual mirror well, so they come to you and be like, you know what? Let me just personify this. Mark, you are filled with pride. You need to be more kind and gracious. At at no point can I say, you're wrong. (laughs) I, I, I do struggle with pride, and I am not a super kind or gracious person. You are right. I mean, let's just do this. How many of you need to pray more? So some jerk comes to you like, "You know what? I have a problem with you. I know you don't pray enough." I'm like, "Ah, oh, you're right." <laughs> like, if you're really sincere, the ungracious person with their judgy fingers pointed at you wins. Because they're right. The problem is their spirit shows none of the kindness of Christ. Name someone more holy who walked this earth and interacted with sinners than Jesus? And how does he treat sinners who are struggling? He says, I'm gentle and lowly. Come to me, and I will will give you a burden that is light. He offers forgiveness and gentleness. So so we see the echo of that in, in statements like James, where he says, God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the I think, I think we we don't articulate the heart of our Savior when we are unkind to anybody, but we excuse it when they're really ugly to us. God is so kind. So I, I think understanding who we are, that's verse 3. Verse 4 calls upon us to just affirm gospel declarations as a way to preach ourselves towards kindness right goodness and loving kindness of god came to me through christ appeared seems to refer to christ he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the holy spirit whom he poured out on us richly through jesus christ you have this great trinitarian call right god our savior did this gracious work as he poured out the Holy Spirit on us through Jesus Christ. Notice the word Savior first modifies God and then finally modifies Jesus. Both God the Father and Jesus are rightly defined as our saviors here in this text. Having said all of that, when was God kind to you? When you were ugly and a jerk, spiritually speaking, or after you had reformed and cleaned up? Right? You see where I'm going, don't you? So like, I, I just want to imagine listening in on this counseling session and, and you're trying to figure out what to tell these two people who are clearly at odds with each other because they hate one another and hate each other in turn, right? That's, that's who we were before Christ. And, and finally, one of them says, I would be kind to you if you would just stop doing whatever. Okay, let's pull out our gospel gun and shoot that one down. That line needs to get put in the grave. The, I will be kind with a contingency, is so ungodly. I will be kind to you if you stop hurting me. Imagine if God said that to you when you were in your sins. You're condemned forever. Forgiveness will always be beyond your reach. I will be kind to you when you stop being so spiritually ugly. No one in the world gets saved. Right, like salvation, the gospel's gone. The gospel is saved, or say it saves us not by works. So when our kindness comes on the basis of works, we look like anyone but Jesus. Kindness is not qualified on conditions. No conditions must be met in order for you to be required to be kind. That is great marriage counseling. Because, man, oh, man, you get in that marriage death spiral where you have two hurt, struggling people who are just pleading with the other person to be kind to them despite their weaknesses. And both of them are saying, I'll be kind to you when you stop hurting me. And it's so hopeless to call them out of it. And they don't understand how deeply they're hurting one another. Do not put any conditions on your kindness, and be particularly proactive at leaning in to be kind when you're hurting, when you're being injured, when the other person frustrates you and annoys you. That's when you need to be kind the most. That's when the gospel's most at risk of being denied in your behavior, and it's the most brilliantly it shines when you have the kindness of Christ and the strength of the Holy Spirit reinforcing your character to do right I'm going I'm I'm to say a couple last thoughts as we kind of end this portion just focusing on the kindness of Christ here. I, I want you to look in verse 8. I have not talked very clearly about all of the lavish grace uh, bestowed on us. We're justified by grace. We've become heirs to this grace. But then he says in verse 8, this saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist, Titus to the church, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. There he goes again. Right? Like, he's, he's like, you be ready for every good work, verse 2. And now he says, Titus, insist on this. Now, I, I do think culture matters a little bit. He's got a church that doesn't like doing good works. It's the Cretan culture. And so he's calling believers to show repentance from a culture that, that just does not, dece- not seem to be morally upright. He goes, these things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about laws for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So here's what I, I just wanted to like put this as a tag. It seems like this is hitched to the whole context of being kind. Right, so it's like be kind to ugly people because Jesus Christ was kind, or God the Father was kind through Jesus Christ is really the right way to think of that. Through through giving us mercy when we didn't deserve it without works, he saved us, washed us and made us clean, gave us this regeneration, bestowed on us this inheritance, all because he's kind and we didn't deserve it. And then he says on the end, "Don't get caught up in dumb arguments and dissensions and divisions. And if someone is a divisive person, kick them out." It's like whoa, like we started with kindness and now you're kicking them out. Like, this is the same passage. You know, it's like a train. I mean, there's, there's you can see the segments, but they're connected. So what's the connection? I, I think it's one of those broad kindnesses that um, as we might assume that there are certain surgeries where you have to remove maybe some organs that have been um, connected to cancer cells. The kindest thing you can do is get rid of the whole tumor. You don't, cut into a person and hack out a piece of their body because you don't like them. You do it because the only way to get health is to remove the thing that's killing them. You know what kills kindness? Partisan, commitments, loyalties to divisions or divisive arguments. And, and I think we, we need to be careful because sometimes we are so committed to being theologically right, we are sinning to do it. Does that make sense like we are we are hurting people in our expression of what is theologically true we are shaming people who are theologically incorrect but sincere and don't know it and they just need to be encouraged and instructed not rebuked not shamed not humbled or or we are in essence condemning someone for being someone on milk because they're not ready for steak and they're a spiritual infant who should be on milk. Yeah, like Hebrews condemns the Hebrews readers, the readers, of the book of Hebrews, because because they should be having solid food, but they still need milk because they're not maturing. But no one should be condemning a six month old infant for just enjoying milk. Spiritually, the same thing is true. Now, having said all that, Titus is to avoid, especially like look at the the line of. Uh, Avoid foolish controversies. Genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law for they're unprofitable and worthless. So he's not talking about fighting for profitable theology. He is talking about a spirit of divisiveness and argumentativeness over things that are non-essential. So we're not talking about standing up for the deity of Christ. We might be talking about something like Standing up and fighting for whether or not we have service on 6 p.m. on Sunday nights. Okay, we could move it to five if that really is something you care about. It just doesn't matter. Know what matters. Fight with kindness and gentleness. And if you can't, you probably shouldn't be in the fight. Now, did Jesus say things bluntly and boldly? Right, so we got to, we got to put that into our theological grid and make it work. Because sometimes we're called to be like Christ and call Pharisees children of their father the devil. Please don't do that to a brother or sister in Christ who doesn't even know what they're talking about. Like, identify the right person and who they are and what they need to hear and do it gently. I mean, I, I just wanted that, that at least attached. That part of kindness is actually getting rid of fighters. Go back to who you were. You were once involved in, at the end of verse, or middle of verse 2, quarreling. You are haters and hating others, right? That's who you were, verse 3. And so when we come to verse um, 11, such a person is self-condemned. They, they seem to not be walking in the gospel, and they are dangerous. Uh, they are a danger to the church because they're divisive. Hopefully that all makes sense. So, so let's, major theme here. Let's just, logic of it. I am called to an unconditional kindness. I probably need to pay particular attention when they are hurting me or their ugliness is pointing at me because like my Savior, I must be kind before I expect them to change. So I need to be kind regardless of them. There, there is no precondition. I should demand of them before I grant them kindness so that I can be like my Savior. Does that make sense? So, crossway, kindness. My daughter felt bad. I, was, I, I wanted to prepare um, some different things, and because of the events of this afternoon, I didn't have time. And I could tell she felt really guilty about that, like, like you planned on getting an offender-bender. Um, you know, but duty as a dad calls. So hopefully next week. My goal is next week, but I have a lot on my plate this week, but I want to do a good job in this sermon especially, is talk about Christ's love for his Father. Because I I think we look at motivations like, why did Jesus do what he did? He is very God-centered. And I think that's like, have you ever heard a sermon about the godliness of Christ? And I mean by that, God-centeredness of Christ. Not like his character being God-like, but God-centeredness. I think that'd be a really fun study, especially as we look at the... um, The end, kind of the high priestly work of Christ in John um, and and that is the Olivet Discourse in John 14, 15, 16, 17. We're talking about the Trinitarian love for one another, why he does the work he does is for the Father. So that's one of the things I want to look at next week. Uh, Lord willing, it'll be a rich study for you to be part of.